Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here once again on our bi-weekly journey through all things horror movie. And today on episode 56, did I already say that? If not, it's episode 56. <laughs> <laughs> now you really know if there were any doubt in your mind, it's episode 56. Hey, did you know that it's episode 56? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about The Void from 2016, the Lovecraftian eldritch horror filled movie. Although I don't know if it's specifically, I actually wrote this down in my notes. I don't know if it's specifically tied to any one Lovecraft story or mythos. No, I don't think so. I think it's taking a lot of inspiration from Lovecraft because they never use any of the specific language, Mm -hmm. you know, like even the chilling adventures of sabrina season that really goes like full eldritch they use a lot of the language to describe like the different figures Mm -hmm. and this movie doesn't do that so i think it's inspired but maybe not a straight up eldritch horror story okay that makes sense in either case it's definitely um parallel yes there's there's some uh some inspiration there but yeah this is one i haven't watched for a really long time but i always enjoy it when i do get a chance to watch it appreciate this movie quite a bit for what exactly what it is and i think it got slept on yeah i feel like this is one that maybe got overshadowed i often see it mentioned alongside films like Mandy and Color Out of Space and, you know, all of those. And I feel like maybe this one didn't get as much attention, maybe because of the lack of Nicolas Cage in it. It probably, you know, if the cop had been played by Nicolas Cage, I'm sure this would be everybody's favorite alleged movie. No offense to Nicolas Cage, but You know, that seems to be how things go these days. That's fair. That's fair. I think that Nick Cage could probably pull that off, too. Yeah, they would do something weird with it. Our main character is a pretty normal dude. They would make him like either not talk at all or I I don't know. (laughs) He would not talk at all. That's great. That's yeah, probably. But this one is fairly indie, I would say like it did go through a production company, but it's a pretty small production. The actors that were in the movie, there's only a few that are really notable in Mm -hmm. terms of like other like I I guess you would say like big name draw. Aaron Poole, he kind of plays our protagonist, Daniel Carter. Kenneth Walsh, who plays uh, Dr. Richard Powell. I always think that this guy is Malcolm McDowell (laughs) every time. He's the discount Malcolm McDowell. (laughs) Yeah. He actually was in Twin Peaks. He played Wyndham Earl way back in OG, like 9091 Twin Peaks. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Ellen Wong from, uh, you know, Scott Pilgrim. And then Kathleen Monroe, who plays Allison Frazier. Outside of that, it's really kind of like a big cast of supporting characters. So I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. But I will say that it's directed by Jeremy Gillespie, who doesn't have a lot of like other giant movies under his belt. He did Father's Day from back earlier uh, in 2011. I do want to say, though, that this was also directed by Stephen Kostansky, who I totally love. He did Psycho Goreman. He did yes. this this movie from, I think it was 2012, called Manborg, which if you haven't seen that one, 100% <laughs> you should watch it. It is hysterical. He also does a lot of makeup and special effects work for other movies. Like he worked on It. it one chapter- of the Leprechaun movies. Right. Yeah, he actually directed one of the Leprechaun movies. One of the later Leprechaun movies, I should clarify. <laughs> he did makeup on like movies like Clown. I don't know if you remember Clown. Yeah. It's been like 10 years. Yeah. Um, Crimson Peak. He worked on Crimson Peak. So really very popular in terms of like special effects and makeup. But he also directs like some pretty good movies. The Crimson Peak connection is also notable because part of the inspiration for making this film is that 
in working with Guillermo del Toro, the filmmakers heard that del Toro has always said that he wanted to do a Lovecraftian film and has had kind of like starts and stops on them in the past. Based on what I've read, that got the filmmakers kind of thinking about Lovecraftian influenced horror and how to do it differently and non-traditionally. And so obviously they took it in a very different direction than del Toro would have. But with that practical effects aesthetic that del Toro always has in his films as well. Yeah. And I think that like Kostansky kind of untethering himself from del Toro in this particular movie was a good move. Yeah. Because his movies have a tendency to be like really over the top with gore and effects and specifically practical effects and like monster creation. See Psycho Goreman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I don't think is kind of in del Toro's like aesthetic realm. Like he does love those practical effects, but he has a tendency to be a little bit more elegant with his yes. creatures and with his storytelling as where Kostansky is like, guess what? We're going to fill this room with a whole bunch of guts and blood and y'all are going to love it. Yeah. Yeah. Del Toro tends to be more romantic in his vision. And yeah, if you look at this movie and even more so Psycho Goreman, it's just like, woo, we're going to have some fun with effects. You want a big weird monster that's all muscly with a giant brain and then like it's going to get shot and like blood is going to go mm-hmm. everywhere and there's going to be guts and stuff cool we've got it for you no <laughs> problem you, <laughs> you want a giant brain that like walks on its own and talks to people that used to be a little boy cool check yeah. got it go. <laughs> <laughs> which is i think a testament to his filmmaking that he could make a movie like psycho gorman about a like intergalactic you know evil being that's also hilarious and heartwarming and funny with little kids. Yes. And also a movie like The Void, which is about an eldritch horror and also like, which I'll crack into later, like child loss and yeah. pregnancy trauma. Yeah. That he can make both of those movies at the same time and both of them are very good. Yeah. What, I, I, what a weird thing. Totally. But I do think what he shares and what this movie shares with Del Toro is like an overall visual palette and it's so funny because i mentioned mandy earlier and this actually came way before mandy and before all the films that followed mandy with the purple look Mm -hmm. that we talked about go listen to our mandy episode yeah this film i think has a subtler version of that that i actually like better like one of my first notes on the movie that i had forgotten is just how the color saturation is so beautiful and it's just slightly unnatural like it's just unnatural enough the blues of the sky especially like the winter sky is just off enough to create the world of the film but also kind of put you at unease like even before we really know there's anything completely you know supernatural or weird beyond just like common crimes of humanity there's something about the look of it that just makes you feel a little uncomfortable and you know something is a little amiss and i love that look and feel and i feel like that was sort of a trend that was happening in like the 2010s you know into the 20 teens and as it progressed people got more and more extreme with like the neon lighting and like a lot of these films that went like full-fledged like purple tint And we see that in a couple of moments with red in this film, but Mm -hmm. it never gets so over the top to a place where I'm just like, well, I think some of the later films that employ that technique do it to cover things up or to compensate for, you know, maybe some cinematography gaps or things like that. And I don't think this film does that at all. Yeah, I have a pretty low tolerance for like color shifts like that. In terms of, like, I can only take it for so long, and that might be part of what annoyed me about Mandy and other works that Panos Cosmatos has done, because I think stylistically, I do like him, Yeah, but I can only tolerate that for, like, short periods of time. I can't do an entire movie where everything is color shifted so bad that I'm like, what is happening in my brain? And when I look away from the screen, I'm like, is color real? (laughs) You know? (laughs) The purple I'm seeing, the purple you're seeing? Is it green now because I stared at it too long? Like... (laughs) You know, stuff like that. So I do appreciate this. And I think that you're right. I think that especially in a movie that so much of the film is filmed in a place where there's fluorescent lighting. Yeah. It's very easy to overdo that. And there's a little bit of green in the hospital 
which is actually a high school I learned yeah. uh, during our watch through. <laughs> There's just a little bit of green. And you're right. It's just enough that we can see something's off, but not so much that we're like, okay, barf. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate that. There is a subtlety done there where we know that there's something wrong, but it's subtle enough that we're like, it's just on the outskirts of your mind. Mm-hmm. So it was really good. I do want to give props, though, later on in the movie, which we'll get to this in the basement. It gets really, really red. It does. And it's awesome. Like the lighting is perfect. Well, it's perfect because you've reached a visual crescendo there. Mm -hmm. You know, like having that all red thing or even some of the blue highlights that increase as we journey deeper and deeper, literally and metaphorically with our characters. It's building that. It's using visuals to build us and to get us to that climax or that, that kind of crescendo point. And I think that's perfect. It's when you just sustain it the whole movie. I'm just like... Okay, well, it kind of lost its effectiveness. And you definitely can overdo it. Yeah. There is a balance. Mm -hmm. Like, you can light up a room red, and you can film in that room. But if everything is red, then it looks really weird, and it makes your eyeballs, like, hurt a little bit. In this case, it's like, we're in the dark. Most of the shot is in the dark. The only thing that we're seeing is the side of the character's face in red. And it's done in such a way that... It's not overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. It's dramatic, but it's not overwhelming. If you haven't seen this movie, it was a festival film. Mm-hmm. It debuted in Canada, which so many indie horror movies debut in Canada. It had a really, really small theatrical opening. So you may not have seen it. I know it's been on streaming and various services. And I think actually the way that I saw this movie first was on streaming. Yeah. Because I know I didn't have the DVD for a long time. It's a movie about a police officer main character who finds this man who's hurt and in need of help takes him to this hospital which is actually actively in the process of closing down due to a fire and we get this really cool like kind of locked room mystery that delves almost like immediately into this eldritch horror where people are like carving their faces off and we have multiple kind of like parallel emergencies. We have these obvious cult members who are kind of trying to infiltrate this building or keep the members inside, people carving their own faces off and attacking other people, and a very young teenage girl who is on the cusp of having a baby. Yeah. All at the same time. (laughs) It's a small town Friday night. I don't know. Yeah, you know. (laughs) And they're the only people in the hospital. I mean, potentially the only people left on Earth. We have no idea. It's, yeah. We, we don't, really don't know at that point. We don't get any like kind of outside backward background information as to what's happening outside this hospital, where this cult comes from, mm-hmm. what the hell is going on. But I like that. I kind of like a movie that like lets you fill in the gaps and doesn't beat you to death with exposition about like backstory. Yeah. Well, I mean, to that point, when we meet our protagonist, he is alone by himself. He is not, you know, in dispatch or in his car in town. He is completely by himself. And although he talks to a dispatcher, you almost wonder, it's like, was that for realsies? Or was that all part of luring him to the place where he needed to be for the cult to accomplish its goals. Yeah. I mean, and when you're dealing with, you know, this sort of supernatural horror and cult rituals and things like that, it could be either. Right. And to your point, we also see later in the movie a phone call where there's definitely not a real phone call happening. Yeah. So like the safety of this world and the mechanics of our regular normal world are definitely compromised. Mm -hmm. So potentially in the way that like, even at the start of the movie, we have the effects of it. I really like that. And unless you think about it, you really aren't concerned about the world outside of this hospital. Right. Up until the point when you're like, okay, can we reach outside? Are we actually talking to people outside? Can we call anyone And we're watching these characters kind of like go down that same rabbit hole at the exact same time that we are. Yeah. Where they're like, what is actually happening? Why did that lady just cut her face off? That girl is also pregnant and she needs help because she's probably having her baby right now. Also, that's my estranged wife. (laughs) And we're having trouble and I haven't seen her in a while. And there's a dead dude on the floor. And there's another dead dude also like who got attacked 
And then these like random dudes, one of whom doesn't talk, who came in and they have guns and they're pointing them at us all at the exact same time. Yeah. That's kind of our like closed room thriller horror thing that's happening immediately. And we have to kind of go through with the characters trying to figure out why are they all here? What's going to happen? Is this girl going to have her baby? Why is there a tentacle monster? Like Mm -hmm. all these Mm -hmm. things at the same time. And so it's really fun to kind of like see those pieces come together at the same time as the characters. I like that. I also like the closed room trope without zombies or without things that are for the most part actively threatening the doors because the cult members, yes, when the characters do go outside to get some stuff from the police car, they do attack. But for the most part, you almost forget they're there when the action is happening inside the hospital. You know, it's not, oh, constantly through the glass doors, you see zombies banging on the doors and windows and trying to get in. Half the time, you don't even see the cult members But when it's important, all of a sudden the characters realize like, oh, no, we can't go out there. And then you see, oh, here are the cult members. And whoops, there are more of them than there were before. But they're just kind of standing there with their knives or they move in very slow sequence. And I like that because it does set it apart from a zombie movie or even movies like The Strangers or Your Next or something like that where you have threats on the outside, but they're being actively aggressive. These cult members are more in a defensive position, not an offensive position. Which is really interesting. And you don't realize this until you get sort of further into the film that they're there to make sure that nobody leaves. Right. Like everybody who's there is supposed to be there for one reason or another. And they're only there to like keep them from leaving. So like when they go to the police car to get these guns... They're not trying to leave, but the cult members don't know that. Right. that. All they see is like three people messing around in this car. So one of them attacks, is killed, and then they retreat back into the hospital. But outside of that, they're not bothered. Yeah. Like they don't care. Yeah. And it's not like they're chasing them back into the hospital or they're trying to get them. Once they flee into the hospital, the cult members are like, cool, we're just going to stand here. Yeah. They're just like traffic cones out in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> like they don't they don't move <laughs> or like advance or anything like that. Not any further. It's interesting in that way because, yeah, you're right. Like most of the time it's antagonistic. Mm-hmm. You're going to have like an outside force antagonistic trying to get in, trying to kill the people. But no, they're like, no, we're like forming a circle of protection around this ritual. And they're like just trying to make sure doing whatever they can to ensure that it will happen. Yeah. Because as we find out later, you can't fucking trust anyone. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. That is another thing I love about this movie is that the two people who come into the hospital later with guns, one of whom can't speak and one of whom definitely has some other shit going on yeah when they come into the hospital they're like we can't trust any of you because any of you could be cult members and they're like wait what are you talking about Mm -hmm. and at first because these are folks that we see earlier in the film actually killing someone we're like wait are they bad guys aren't they bad guys who is actually a cult member and who's not are they plants And as we go through the course of the movie, we realize that several of the people that we've met, we can't trust. Yeah. Or they become enamored or like possessed almost by whatever is happening in this hospital during the course of the film, Mm -hmm. which is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you have like these switching alliances where you're like, that guy's a bad guy. I'm not going to trust him. And then you're like, wait, no, that guy's not the bad guy. Or wait, maybe he is a bad guy. (laughs) It keeps you on your toes. It does. In that regard, and in many regards, honestly, I think this movie owes a lot to The Thing. But I should say, like, it is not a clone of The Thing at all. Like, you can see where, you know, it was obviously influenced by that movie, but it's not trying to copy it in any way, shape, or form, because it doesn't even have, although there's this kind of mystery of, like, or this kind of bait and switch of this person is bad, no, this person is bad, no, this person, whatever, it doesn't have the same like who done it vibe mm-hmm. that the thing does and yet there are so many ways in which it kind of nods to that film or is influenced by it and i think that's part of what makes it so great yeah there's definitely a big john carpenter feel here one of the ways in which i think that it kind of pays homage to john carpenter is the sound design yeah that like atmospheric type of 
almost techno, but not quite techno, you know, like it's like ambient droning. Yeah, like electronic. Certainly not like, you know, a saxophone. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. it's definitely digital of some sort, but like that atmosphere building sound effect is perfect in this film. And John Carpenter sometimes uses like an actual song, especially in some of his more iconic films, but he also does a really good job of just putting in sound like making these scenes that aren't silent and yeah. that kind of builds the dread. Yeah, it's a melodic and it's typically just some ambient tones and things like that that make you feel either dread or fear or just kind of again like uneasy or that kind of wrap you up in the world of the film. Carpenter in particular is really good at that and it's been fun because I think he did that a lot in his, especially his earlier films um, and his films in the 80s. And I feel like horror got away from that for a little bit. But definitely in like the 2010s moving forward, you see directors making that choice to score that way or to work with somebody that scores that way. And I really like that because I think it can really enhance a film. Definitely. Another way that this is like very Carpenter-esque, I would say, and I already kind of touched on this earlier when I was talking about Stephen Kostansky, but the practical effects in this movie are just like chef's kiss. Oh, yeah. I mean, we kind of chatted about this while we were watching it. What do movie audiences even want when it comes to to (laughs) effects? What does anybody want? (laughs) Like, honestly, I often feel like I'm out of touch with people because I'll see something like won an award or people are really talking about that's great. And I just am like, I don't understand. Yeah. I keep seeing this commercial. I'm not going to say what podcast it is, but... I keep seeing this commercial for a podcast that won a Webby. And I'm just like, how? How did this thing win a Webby? Yeah. This is horseshit. I like, it's not for me, though. And (laughs) I have to understand that awards are not, I'm not going to get all of the awards. And then I don't have to understand why people like a thing. But when it comes to horror effects, we see movies that have digital effects. We see movies that have practical effects. We see movies that have no effects. And people bitch about it no matter what. Yeah, no one is happy no matter what you do. So yes, these are practical. They are very like tentacly mutant, you know, changing the inside of people and making them go on the outside. (laughs) You know, it's very much like the thing in that regard. And they look great. I think that they're honestly probably among the best practical effects I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. They really don't look campy. No. Like maybe Psycho Goreman, which is on purpose, like goofy looking. Like most of the baddies look like Power Rangers characters, I think on purpose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome. But these are good. It actually looks like people's bodies. It looks like Eldritch Horrors, you know. And I really appreciate that. Honestly, I think that... If you look at the design for Vecna, which I know that you're not there yet on Stranger Things, but you might have already seen a picture of it, it pretty much looks exactly like our kind of end baddie in this movie. And I wonder, I didn't see it on Stephen Kostansky's IMDb, so I'm going to assume that no, he did not work on Stranger Things. Yeah. But there's a lot of borrowing happening there. Oh, yeah. Who also looks like Baron Ofenos from What We Do in the Shadows. Yes, yes. (laughs) So there's definitely some folks that are borrowing, even from Stephen Kostansky, who clearly borrowed from John Carpenter. Yeah. Once again, we're back to John Carpenter in in the podcast. (laughs) It all comes around to John Carpenter. Yeah, exactly. The other visual thing that I think works really well is the simplicity of the cult iconography. You know, it's simply a triangle and they simply wear white robes with a triangle, which (laughs) can seem kind of silly, but actually gives it kind of an eerie effect because it's not your typical Christian cult imagery that we're used to. So it raises a lot more questions about who are these cult members? What do they believe in other than they're going to open some kind of portal to somewhere presumably kind of hell? Right. Um. I really liked that and the recurrence of just that black triangle throughout, both in deliberate imagery and sometimes you would get it in a shot where it was kind of atmospheric, where it had to do with the framing. I thought it was really, really clever. And I like that kind of going back to what you were saying about we don't get a lot of background on this cult and that's okay. 
I kind of enjoyed that. Like it kept it very, very ambiguous. And as an audience member, you can kind of put whatever you want to on that cult. And a triangle is a really good symbol for that because if you know anything about like geometry or the roots of geometry, like you can, if you so choose, read a lot into a triangle as being the chosen symbol of the cult. And like a pyramid, which we see later. There's definitely a lot to crunch into there. And I do like that we have to fill in the blanks Mm -hmm. that we don't get like, okay, who is actually the leader of this? Is it the doctor? Is it, you know, somebody else that we don't see? Are they being influenced by, you know, something else? Because all that the doctor fills us in on is that there are things older than time, Mm -hmm. which I love that. I'm like, yes, let's leave it there. Yeah. Because we don't need to ascribe this to a certain like deity or God or religion. It's just scary to know that these folks almost end up turning on one another because they are so afraid of what's going down in this hospital. Yeah. I mean, not to say that they shouldn't be because it's pretty scary. But yeah, I do appreciate a movie that thinks enough of its viewers that they're like, no, you know what? We don't have to spell all this out for you. Yeah. Well, and I like, too, that I felt it was very clear that although the doctor in his transformed state at the end of the movie was our sort of big bad, our villain, it's definitely strongly implied that, you know, well, he says there are things older than time, that he is not the ultimate in terms of power or influence. And I think, and maybe this is because I have just been catching up on Old Gods of Appalachia, which y'all should listen to, especially if you like this movie, you should definitely listen to that. This whole idea of even the entity that may think it's the most powerful or holds the most power is often beholden to something more powerful yet to be revealed. This is kind of a common theme in those type of stories where they think like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. And then they're not doing the right thing, you know? (laughs) But this one, I don't know. I can't say enough about how much I like the idea of a small town person of some sort of power or influence in a town secretly cultivating. (laughs) I use cultivating, (laughs) no pun intended there, but secretly like sowing the seeds of this final beings emergence yeah in this town and nobody knew about it and they were just like oh there's a fire in this hospital it's like yeah why was there such a bad fire in this hospital yeah what kind of flames are we i mean i know that there's oxygen and stuff but like yeah what's really going on and we have b-movie malcolm mcdowell who's there to like <laughs> you know walk us through that i don't know i really honestly think that this movie like it should yeah. have more of a following more of a viewership than it did yeah and i saw the imdb rating of course i go down the trivia rabbit hole every time (laughs) i saw the imdb rating it's like 5.6 or 5.7 out of 10 and i'm like y'all are in a cult (laughs) well it's funny too because i get the sense sometimes that people you know there has been such a resurgence and this is a whole like you know problematic rabbit hole that you can go down. But there has been such a resurgence in interest in H.P. Lovecraft's works. And like, he was a very problematic person. So let's just say that up front. And I think that gets a little sticky sometimes. But there has been such a resurgence of interest in his works. And yet I feel like sometimes it is very, very like surface level pop culture. Like people want to be all about Cthulhu, but they don't seem to want to actually consume media that is then reception of Lovecraft, Mm -hmm. where it's like, we're going to take these ideas or this iconography and we're going to make it into something modern or different or interesting. They're just like, no, Cthulhu, yay, let's make Cthulhu plushies and, and, you know, make our Lovecraftian cookbook, which I own, by the way. (laughs) Thanks, Maurice, for that, by the way. But yeah, sometimes I think people... Like, that's as far as they want to go with it. And they're not ready for what, like, mythological... And, and we we can call Lovecraft, like, modern mythology. They're not ready for what 
mythological reception actually is, which is it's transformational, Mm -hmm. which is like, no, we're not just going to tell the same story with Cthulhu over and over and over again. We're going to take these ideas and we're going to make something new with them. And I think a lot of people are not ready for that when it comes to Lovecraft, especially in the sort of like modern moment that his work has been having for the past, I'd say, 15 years at this point. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's really easy to grab onto Cthulhu as like the thing that Lovecraft did. It is one of the old ones. It's not the only one. Right. And there are so many other interesting worlds that he built that don't have anything to do with Cthulhu. And there has also been a real resurgence in it in like video games, Mm -hmm. board games. Oh my God, I can't tell you how many Lovecraft board games there are. And it's all around that same thing. And it's like, okay, we get it. Cthulhu is cool or whatever. Okay, let's keep it moving. Yeah. And I think that the ultimate dread here and being like, the void being a pathway to another plane of existence Mm -hmm. where you're still alive but not present in whatever body or soul you had on our plane is a really fascinating way to kind of view this movie through the lens at the end. Yeah. Where we see our main protagonist, the cop, and his estranged wife reuniting on this other plane of existence that looks very bleak and weird. And there's this giant ominous pyramid that's floating in the sky. And the rest of the world just has to keep going. Yeah. Which that's also something that we don't get a lot of. It's like, okay, well, what does the world look like? Right. In that regard, I think the ending has so much in common with Revealer, Mm -hmm. which goes into our episode on that. But it really, I felt it was like a parallel ending where you see our two characters in a kind of different reality, but we don't know, are they, air quotes, dead? Have they been transported somewhere? What is happening with the, is the rest of the world over? Mm -hmm. And they are the only survivors from the prior world? Or are they just elsewhere? We don't know. And it's up to the audience to kind of figure that out. And that was the same kind of ending that that movie had. And I like that in both regards. Yeah. I mean, that's always the way that you judge a movie. It was like, how does it end? Right. And in this case, we have two characters who are in this other plane. And we have two characters left on our side. Mm-hmm. And they're just like really pleased to see one another and just like really happy that they're seeing another person alive who's not a part of a cult and or not made of tentacles, <laughs> which I mean, like I would be too yeah. if my entire night had been spent like fighting tentacle monsters off with an axe and trying to deliver this pregnant girl's baby and also seeing people with their faces cut off and shot to death and stuff like sure. Yeah, I would probably be really stoked about that, too. I don't know. I just have only good things to say about the ending of this film. I just really Mm -hmm. feel like it wrapped it up. One thing, though, that I was honestly surprised that I keyed on to this go round that I have not really spent a lot of time thinking about in previous watch throughs is the through line of like pregnancy trauma and loss. Yeah. I was really surprised that in prior watches, I had not spent a lot of time thinking about that. But nearly all of the characters... I'm not sure about the guy who's silent, but nearly all of the other characters are brought to this place for one reason or another that had to do with the loss of a child. Well, even the guy who's silent, we get a sense that he's adjacent to the loss of a child in the one vision. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I think they are all together in some way, shape or form in that regard. We have the older gentleman with the gun. He clearly has lost a child. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's his, we never really get that spelled out so much. Yeah. But he's carrying around a bloody, tiny shoe. So if it's his, if it's his grandchild, maybe. Mm-hmm. You have the cop and his wife, who's a nurse. They lost a child, which is why the nurse ever even started working at the hospital because she had gone there when she was experiencing the miscarriage. You have the teenage girl who is in the throes of labor, potentially to lose her child. You have the doctor who lost his daughter. And yeah. that's kind of like the reason why he's doing all of this in the first place. The, the reason why he became interested in summoning this thing from the other side to try and 
take over the soul or be like a surrogate kid. I, I don't really know yeah. what the point is there because it's like a giant horse dog. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, not really a daughter, but it could it could serve sure. that purpose, sure. <laughs> but they've all been kind of brought to this place because of that loss. And I just thought that was fascinating. Something that I just didn't even pay any attention to the first time. I'm like, y'all, all these people are just in this hospital, just trying to live, yeah. trying to live their lives. But there's really a deeper kind of discussion that's happening about pregnancy trauma, loss, loss of a child specifically, and all of the transformative and horrific things that happen as you go through the process of being a mom. Not to knock on moms because like, I could never do it, but yeah, kudos to anybody to who can. <laughs> but it is horrific. It is oh, yeah. in parts disgusting. I'm sure that there are people that would argue till they're blue in the face with me about it, about how it's beautiful and it's life affirming and all this stuff. Cool. It can be both. But you, you got to understand that something that regularly makes women shit while they're in the process of doing it involuntarily is probably horrifying. <laughs> and like they keep talking about this girl getting a C-section, which... I mean, C-sections in and of themselves, I think that it's like a well-kept secret that people don't talk specifically about what happens during a C-section because people are so terrified of it. And they're like, nobody would have babies if they knew that they take out your organs and lay them on you while they're making sure that your baby is delivered healthy. Gross, man. Come on. Like, let's just say what it is. It's terrifying. Yeah. So my aside story about this is when I very briefly worked in publishing. I worked in an office with cubicles. And I recall that someone had gotten maybe pregnant with their second child and was talking to someone else who had recently, fairly recently given birth to their first child. And they were in the cubicle next to me. And for whatever reason, I didn't have my headphones that day. And they were talking at great length about their like birth stories. And while I appreciate that they were being very like honest and candid with each other, I was seriously like, I am having an anxiety attack right now. I am going to die. I don't want to hear this. Yeah. I am never going to have children. (laughs) If there were any doubt in my mind, hard pass now. It was awful. It was like the worst thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, thanks. Sorry. I mean, more power to anybody like every person who's ever given birth ever, like more power to you. Yeah. I appreciate you. I thank you for continuing, you know, positive population growth on the earth, but hell no. Yeah. Straight up. Like even the thought of having to assist with somebody having a baby, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'm strong enough, (laughs) y'all. I don't know if I could do it. I can do a lot of things, but I'm going to be the person who blacks out, like, you know, trying to help you out there. So I think I'm I'm real good on that. Yeah. I've seen like, you know, in health class in high school, you got to watch videos about like the miracle of childbirth. And I I was like, that is an elder chore in and of itself. (laughs) Honestly, childbirth is an elder chore. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. But what is surprising way I mean, I guess you could argue one way or the other that it's sensitive or insensitive, depending on how you feel about giant tentacle monsters. But I think it's kind of a sensitive way to discuss how people handle it in good ways and in bad. I mean... Mostly it's bad in this case. Well, I mean, you know, this goes back to our kind of ongoing conversation about what horror does well and the function that horror movies and horror media serves, which is using, you know, extreme situations, sometimes outlandish situations to tap into very real, deep-seated fears and anxieties of society. So I think it actually does do that very, very well. Is everybody going to be able to latch onto that in this movie or any other movie? No, but I think that, you know, in regard to like doing what horror does the best, this movie does it pretty well. We see that reflected even in the grandfather character, you know, where he factors into that child loss story, too, because here he is 
not a parent, but a grandparent. We don't know where this young person's parents are in a caretaker role. And he is very concerned throughout this film. And he is facing, you know, potentially welcoming a great grandchild into the world, but also losing his granddaughter because we learn that, you know, this has been a kind of a tricky pregnancy. Yeah. You know, and he is there as a support and all of that. So I think no matter who you identify with in this movie, whether it's the grandfather, whether it's Maggie, the young woman, whether it's one of the characters who has lost someone or who has experienced like a traumatic childbirth situation, this movie provides kind of outlets for many different experiences around like child loss and and traumatic pregnancy. And loss in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are parts where our characters have to make some really tough decisions, specifically our main character who has been estranged from his wife since the loss of their son who Mm -hmm. she miscarried. And he has not been dealing well with it. She has been dealing with it in her own way, doing a lot of work and, and spending a lot of time at the hospital in her capacity as a professional. And our main character hasn't seen her in a while. Mm-hmm. And we get the impression that they haven't really spoken, but that they're on okay terms, like they care about one another, kind of in an antagonistic way almost, but they can't be around one another. Yeah. But there is a point in the movie where his wife ends up being an experiment slash almost a vessel, partially a vessel for the doctor's ultimate goal, I guess you could say. And he harvests this thing out of her and she also ends up like being attached to the walls with tentacles and our main character ends up having to kill her yeah take an axe to her for a really long time like egregious long time but he knows that that's the way that like it has to happen this way because he doesn't want to see his wife used anymore for this Mm -hmm. like sort of messed up experiment it really ends up getting pretty deep like yeah. there are some character studies that are happening even though we have a lot of characters in this movie i think it ends up being a lot deeper than i wanted to give it credit for because i knew that there was a story that was happening and people dealing with loss and like recent loss old loss like our doctor his daughter died eons ago at this point like not really eons but a long time ago yeah, decades yeah it's been a long time that he's been working to get this kind of weird cult thing and like transcending life and death sort of thing together but i think there's something that everyone can relate to mm-hmm. in this movie like yeah you probably have never been attacked by a tentacle monster but you've lost someone that's close to you or you've had to make tough decisions about the loss of somebody And specifically among pregnancy. I mean, I think the statistic is that one in four or one in three people who have a uterus have had a miscarriage at some point. So that's a lot of people. You definitely know someone who has experienced a loss of a child. I mean, it's weird and kind of touching that this movie gets to that level. Well, and what I think is kind of brilliant about this movie is that you can kind of choose how you want to engage with it. like. You can go down this road and you can engage with it on the level we've just been talking about. You can also just engage with it as a good old-fashioned tentacle monster movie, and you're going to have a really good experience either way. And rare are the movies that can do both. You know, I think about like Ari Aster, and you can't not engage with like the big, deep, emotional stuff in Hereditary and Midsummer. You know, it's just there for you. And that's what you're going to experience with those movies. There's no like, okay, haha, fun monster time in those movies. It's like, no, we're charting an emotional course here. We're going to be digging deep in our psyches. And other movies, and these are fine too, are just fun slashery monster movies. But this one you can kind of do either or both. You know, you can have a good time with it. If you just want to have tentacle monster cult time, you can do that. But you can also, if you want to look a little closer, you can gain deeper meaning out of it, too. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I will share a tiny story about my first watch of this movie because it's our podcast and we can do what we want. Heck yeah. 
So the first time I watched this movie, it was either 2016, like late 2016 or early 2017, whenever this hit streaming originally. I can't remember which. But I had had this extremely bad plane trip and and honestly, just like a really bad time, the end of 2016. So I have been watching a lot of Black Mirror on Netflix and I ended up having a major dissociative episode at the same time, which I can laugh about now, although at the time it was very serious and I was having a really bad time. And the first time I watched this movie was shortly after that. It scared me so bad I didn't finish the movie the first time. Oh, wow. I was like so deep into the movie and so like feeling the dread Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. cult so acutely that I couldn't watch the movie. I couldn't finish it. Now I really enjoy watching this movie and I like it a lot. But it makes me think back to the time like if you're not in a good place, maybe not the movie to watch. Like maybe watch something nice. Watch Great British Bake Off. That probably will help. (laughs) Yeah, it it was bad. I felt so scared of it that I had to go to bed. I was like, I'm going to go watch The Office and I got to go to bed. Yeah, yeah. Which now I'm like, oh, no, this is great. But then that like major dissociative episode I was having was it was so intense. And I think that there's something there, like a movie that when you're like maybe not feeling 100 percent in terms of mental health, that scares you so bad yeah. that you have to go to bed and you yeah. can't finish it. There's definitely something there. Your mileage might vary. You might not be having a bad time when you watch this movie, but maybe you also can't finish it. But for me specifically, I was like, oh my God, what if there are cults everywhere? <laughs> and they're all trying to have these like, weird, like, I wasn't even scared of the end. I was just scared of the idea that there are people out there who are doing secret rituals to call about the end of the world yeah it it, like something about that just touched a very 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 basic nerve for me i was like i'm going to bed (laughs) (laughs) i don't blame you but i think like because the cult stuff is so deliberately vague like that's what it can do to you yeah is you know you can you know again kind of like choose your own adventure on the cult and depending on where your head is at like you can get pretty pretty spirally with some of this stuff and at the time there was nobody living to the left or to the right of the house that i live in so that was also kind of an isolating yeah you know i'm like well what kind of shit's going on in the basement next door you know (laughs) like somebody yeah it was bad (laughs) i also couldn't watch black mirror for a really long time because of that of that specific thing it was the episode there's an episode where a guy plays, I can't remember the name of it, that particular episode, but this guy plays a AI video game of himself and like he's testing it and he has to go into this haunted house and he also has a dissociative experience. Oh. I can watch Black Mirror for a really long time. Yeah, that that does not sound comfortable at all. Sometimes watching a movie or watching a television show or a movie that like shows you very clearly a mirror into yourself is like not a good thing. Yeah, it can be a good thing. But yeah, sometimes if you're not ready for that experience, it can be an actual negative experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can look back on it now and be like, oh, that's a fond memory, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Air quotes, fond memory. And I think about that every time I watch this movie. I really do enjoy it now. But when I first watched it, I was like, oh, God, I got to go to bed. I mean, that was me with Midsummer. Yeah. You know, like, I just could not handle it the first time. No. Couldn't even see all of the pros of the movie and all of the things that I absolutely enjoy about it now because... I was just not in a place to receive what was being offered, which was way too similar to situations in my own life. So yeah. I was just, not, <laughs> I was not down. Yeah. But upon second watch, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is great. But it's always going to have a special place for you because you'll remember like, wow, yeah, the first time I could not sink my teeth into this yeah. for one reason or another. And now I can look back and like really enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's a special thing. And like, also very specific and like to the person who's watching the film. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely not saying that everybody's going to have this weird dissociative experience watching it. But I think that that's a special thing. And it's important to share when you have strange experiences with movies (laughs) like that, because that's kind of the point. Yeah. 
I do have a question for you. Yeah. If you were in a cult, would you keep the evidence, all the evidence of the cult in your work desk <laughs> in no. a lockbox? Sure wouldn't. I get that we had to like link the plot back together, but the cop finding like all these, po- not only are they Polaroids of a cult, they're also like Polaroids of illegal activities yeah. within this cult and like gross shit. They're legit just like in a box on the desk. It was locked and now it's like beat up and not locked anymore. I probably wouldn't be keeping that shit in my work desk. I mean, granted, my work desk is also in my home now, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least you keep it in, like, a false bottom something-something, you know? I mean, I guess, though, if you're an apocalyptic cult and you're just like, look, it's happening tonight, all bets are off. <laughs> Maybe they were like, you know, nobody goes into my office. I can't leave it at home because my wife might find it or something. Who knows? But I would not consider my work office a safe space for no. my, my cult evidence. No, definitely not. <laughs> So next time we are talking about another movie close in age to this one, mm-hmm. but we are going for a uh, our first foreign film of, of the year, uh, which is called Terrified from 2017. And I am very excited because I don't think you've seen this one yet. I haven't. I think the movie's called When Evil Lurks. Yes. Okay. So that was like one of the most talked about movies of 2023. It's a Spanish horror movie. This is also a Spanish horror movie. So I'm really excited to share that this one with you because a lot of people have said that there are parallels to this one and When Evil Lurks. And considering this movie is now seven years old, I want to see how it holds up to your experience with When Evil Lurks. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to watch this one because I, as I said in our best of 2023 episode, I really, really loved When Evil Lurks. So I'm excited to kind of see something that maybe was a precursor to it or see how it might connect stylistically. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. And hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.